Welcome to the Monster Podcast. This is Justin. And this is Jay. And today we have a very special guest, and I want to start uh, first by, uh, I was just told to stop apologizing, but I'm going to apologize because uh, this <laughs> this episode is long overdue. It was actually first recorded in uh, July or June, and I uh, inadvertently lost the file. And uh, both Jay and our special guest here have been very patient, uh, waiting to reschedule. So uh, I'm happy we're back on the air. And uh, our friend Paul Mifsud of uh, Instagram, at sign T206, is his handle. He's also an attorney for Major League Baseball and one of the premier collectors of, as his Instagram name suggests, signed T206 baseball cards. Welcome, Paul. Uh, thank you for having me again. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. We're we're like- we we're so excited to talk with you, Paul. We had such a good such a good chat the first time around, and we're gonna we're gonna try to recreate all of our conversations from uh, July. I know I for one, I'm I'm still in my basement. I think they will be better uh, this time around, and uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Nice. Uh, well, why don't you give uh, you know all our listeners a little background about who you are, what you do, and what you collect, and uh, how you ended up in the hobby. Sure. Um, okay. So um, I've been a baseball fan most of my life. When I was uh, when I was eight years old, my dad took me to games two and six of the 1981 World Series. And then, um, which was the Yankees and the Dodgers, and the Yankees lost, unfortunately, after winning the first two at home. Uh, and then in 86, I was lucky enough to go back to the World Series, this time with the Mets um, and the Red Sox, and I was at games two and seven, and I still vividly remember as a 13-year-old kid getting champagne poured over my head by giddy fans as the Mets celebrated their world championship. Um, Ed Koch, actually, the mayor of New York at the time, was walking around high-fiving people, and he actually high-fived me, just, and I was like, I wasn't anywhere particularly close. I was actually out in the left field seats and he just walked by and slapped my hand, which was something I'll never forget. Um, but that was kind of the turning point for me in terms of getting excited about baseball and being in the hobby um, in 1987, which actually is a, is a pivotal year for a lot of people who collect my generation. I'm in my late 40s now. Uh, 1987 came out and Mark McGuire was running for the rookie record in home runs. And that white bordered set kind of um, got a lot of kids interested. And I remember learning in, in a skill, I guess the class was called skills in seventh grade. And there was this kid who brought in his Don Mattingly cards and pointed out how valuable they were that year. And lo and behold, you could go down to the local store in my town where I grew up and you could for 50 cents buy a pack of 87 tops cards and you might get a Mattingly card that could be worth $4. Right. So that was for me, that, I thought, I saw dollar signs there. I saw like an, like arbitrage. Year old. Um, and so I was in like crazy at that point. And all I wanted was Mattingly and McGuire cards. And I had a buddy who collected Canseco and he would just trade me anything for his, for Canseco cards. And I got pretty into the hobby at that point. Um, I just bought a ton of stuff as much as I could as a kid. And, you know, my fandom continued to grow. I I remember in the late 80s seeing on the cover of the Daily News um, that there was a guy, I guess he was a sports agent, and he had, you know, four or five baseball cards in his hand and that he represented each of those players. And I remember reading about him, and it turns out he's an, he was an attorney as a sports agent. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, my parents are attorneys. I could be an attorney. And then I can not only have baseball cards, I can actually represent the players who are on those cards. I thought that was fascinating. And I started really focusing on, you know, even though I was in high school at the time, just starting to think about, you know, how I could continue to build some kind of resume that would eventually lead me to work in in baseball in some capacity. And then I remember a few years later, 94, that was the strike year, but it was also a huge year for baseball cards. People were going crazy for Ken Griffey Jr. that year. I think Jeff Bagwell was really hot that year. Mattingly looked like he was going to get to the playoffs for the first time in his career. There was a lot of excitement around the sport and around the hobby. 
Um, and then the strike happened and it kind of let the sales out um, quite a bit. And then the only people you would see in the, in the newspaper those days were, were the lawyers, right? Because you had all the labor lawyers for both the Players Association and Major League Baseball arguing constantly in the media about it for another six to eight months. And obviously the World Series was lost. And I remember thinking, you know, maybe one day I'll get to work at Major League Baseball and make sure there's never another work stoppage. You know, this is terrible. Um, so that was 94 into 95. 95 happened. That was the year I graduated college. Um, Cal Ripken Jr. that year was vying for and did succeed in eclipsing um, Lou Gehrig for the, for the Ironman, the number of consecutive games. Uh, without sitting out um, statistic, which is crazy um, that he did that. And that kind of started people welcoming back baseball into their families. I actually, that summer at Yankee Stadium, caught a foul ball during batting practice off of Ripken's bat that the next year in law school in Miami, I actually was able to get Cal Ripken to sign it um, before a spring training game. Uh, that was really exciting for me. And that was one of the reasons I started also refocusing on autographs. Um, I really liked getting autographs in person. I didn't really collect other people's autographs, but I spent a lot of time going to spring training games for the next four years um, and trying to get as many autographs as I can, as I could. I would drive all around Florida because my dad has a house in Florida. I live in New York, by the way, but my dad has a house in Florida and I used to drive around all the spring training games. Um, and then, you know, obviously I went to law school graduated in 98. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work at a law firm um, called Proskauer Rose, which at the time was in Times Square. And 98 was when the NBA was having one of its many lockouts. And I got to work with some of the lawyers who were working on the NBA lockout. And then in 1999, um, a, a weird thing happened where I guess um, most of the major league umpires at the time did not like that they were going to start being evaluated on their ball strike calls um, by a machine called Quest Tech, uh, which was man, I remember, I remember Quest Tech. I remember that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you can interrupt me at any point and ask questions. I'm just going through my life story. Uh, so, so they, uh, yeah, so Quest Tech happened. The umpires all decided that rather than negotiate over it, they were just going to resign and they were going to form their own third party corporation that was going to contract out umpiring services. Um, but they hired the law firm of Proskauer, which is where I was at. When I found out that baseball was going to be um, represented by Proskauer on that matter, I literally threw myself on the floor of the uh, assigning partner and said, you have to put me on this case. This is something I've been wanting to do for really my whole life. And I got lucky enough to get put on that case. And so for a month or so, I worked on the litigation over um, the mass resignation scheme of the Umpires Association. Um, and then about six months later, uh, John Rocker said some horrible things um, about women minorities and, and people in the LGBT community uh, and, and all in the context of riding the seven train to then Shea Stadium. Um, and he did that in a Sports Illustrated article or he did that with a Sports Illustrated reporter and it was published in a Sports Illustrated article in December of 99. Um, and uh, there was a grievance over the suspension that Commissioner Seelig imposed on, on John Rocker for that. Proskauer again got hired to do that grievance. I got put on that case, and I did a lot of research into the law behind discipline for off-field misconduct, which is what that was. Uh, and um, a the senior the senior labor lawyer at baseball, a guy by the name of Rob Manfred, saw my work and uh, hired me the next September as a junior labor attorney in his group. Um, and I've been there ever since. I've been at baseball since 2001 in, in the labor group primarily, although lately I've spent a lot of time in baseball operations doing things like player contracts, salary arbitration, rules issues, uh, contract issues of all kinds related to 
the, the field of play. And obviously, um, the guy who hired me 20 years ago is now the commissioner. Um, so it's been a been a pretty interesting ride. Uh, I'm still very excited to work there. I still count my blessings every day that I do. Um, but um, my fandom has changed a lot since I started working at baseball. And instead, I would kind of more consider myself a baseball card fan now, meaning I get very excited about um, vintage cards, in particular T206 cards. Um, and uh, I got my first T206 cards uh, back in 1997 when a guy uh, who was a friend of a friend uh, decided he wanted to sell his grandpa's collection of tobacco cards so he could fund a trip to Las Vegas. Uh, um, and he, I had uh, $500, and I brokered a deal for a white-capped um, Christy Matthewson and a Chief Bender portrait with a sovereign back, which later graded a five and a four, respectively, by both PSA and SGC. I've had them in several different holders over the last 25 years. Um, but always a five and a four. Um, and uh, and then a, a magical thing called eBay showed up around 98 or 99, and I joined that and found that I could get even more of these tobacco cards um, really for a lot less than I was expecting to pay at the time um, and put together essentially a, a complete set um, within 10 years I then, um, I, I did not have the Plank, the Wagner, or the Doyle, um, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but it should be obvious. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> you are an attorney for Major League Baseball. Who knows, Paul? <laughs> right. Uh, well, the funny thing about being an attorney at Major League Baseball is that if you can't hit a curveball, they're going to pay you like an attorney and not like a football <laughs> player. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you, and, how do you uh, get the curveball? Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot more supply of lawyers who want to work at baseball than there yeah. are guys who can hit hit a curveball. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you can figure out the rest in terms of compensation. Uh, <laughs> but but um, yeah, so um, I was able to. I, I ended up trading most of, or selling most of my collection in. I think 2007 to make a run at Lionel Carter's Eddie Plank in the Mastro auctions of April 2007, and I was able to get it. Uh, and uh, I was really excited to get it. And um, I actually called Lionel Carter on the telephone and interviewed him um, about his Eddie Plank card, which was a thrill. Actually, I note that that card actually just sold again in Robert Edward auctions this year, actually. Oh yeah, it's like a one with a bunch of creases, right? Or an authentic? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I got an offer I couldn't refuse a few years ago, so I did ultimately part with it. But one of the reasons that I was able to part with it or, or, or sort of interested in parting with it is because my interest in collecting T206 cards really shifted pretty heavily towards autographed T206 cards around 2007. So, sir, so tell us a little bit about that. How did you get into the autographs in around 2007? And um, sort of how did you learn? And how did, how did you go from there? Because a, it's a challenging discipline to, to thrust yourself in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I think like anybody who collects tobacco cards, at least initially, doesn't even contemplate the idea that there's any of these autographed in existence. It wasn't even something that was on my radar screen. I just figured all of these players have been long dead. The cards are small. You really don't ever see autographed tobacco cards anywhere. Um, well, you don't now because you have them all. <laughs> <laughs> Fair question or point. Um, I do not have them all, however. I know, jokes, I know jokes, jokes. myself and some combination of people I'm well aware of have them all. Um, <laughs> and the ones who have the ones I need should, should listen to this podcast and send them to me. Um, yeah. But um, I think it was 2004 on eBay. Um, a group of four Marquards, uh, the two, I think two portraits and two hands at sides, um, all showed up on eBay in PSA DNA holders, which was kind of fascinating. 
Um, and they were up for like a week. So you had a lot, like a lot of cards are, right? They're up for a week. So you have a lot of time to think about whether you want to do something with them or not. And I remember talking to my wife at the time who, you know, I don't want to say she's interested in baseball cards because she's pretty much not that interested in baseball cards, but she's very accepting and understanding of my affliction. Shout out at this moment to my wife who comes to the Chantilly card show with me, knows who the big four are. Uh, has looked through my entire monster several times, has helped me sort through commons at the <laughs> Chantilly show. I think we should uh, give a shout out to all of the wives that deal with our uh, our, our, our affliction, as Paul puts it. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, so my wife, um, the, the scariest thing she and I ever did for T206 cards, this was back in, again, probably around the same time, 2003, 2004. There was a, a guy that I identified either on eBay or on or on the original Net54 boards um, who had who proclaimed to have a stack of 100 T206 cards that he wanted to sell for $500, right? So we're talking $5 a piece. And he would do the deal in person in New York City. And it would, we were going to do it at, at or around Grand Central Station. And I was really kind of terrified about meeting this guy because he seemed really sketchy on the telephone. Like, I want to say he sounded like he was drugged out. Um, and I really believed that there was a good chance I was being scammed in order to, like, help feed his drug addiction or something. Um, and so my wife at the time said, you know what, I'll go with you. So the two of us, like, head out to Grand Central one night to get these cards and sure enough the, this he was a kid basically he was like late teens early 20s he definitely looked drugged out um but he also had a pile of <laughs> in his in a in a, in, in a in the pockets of his sweat jacket um and he pulled them out and they were wet believe it or not disgusting and they smelled like smoke like as, as if someone had left them in a puddle of like cigarette water um they were they were in pretty beat up condition as you can imagine but there were some pretty decent cards in there i remember there being a lajaway um and there were ironically or strangely enough there were a lot of american beauty cards um they were all in really rough condition and for the longest time those cards there were about a hundred of them and those cards made up good chunk of my first set and I would upgrade them as other cards came in and trade it, trade or sell those off. I dried them of course first. Um, they did dry, but they always, they always reeked and they were always fairly disgusting looking. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are true beaters, but they, once you dried them, you know, they were more or less collectible still. Have you met Justin's set? <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> I said, have you met Justin set? Yeah, I think my, some of them might be here in my monster. <laughs> I would be curious. So there's somebody out there who, who collects American Beauty bags right now that has a ton of these things, I'm sure. I'll go smell mine after we record. If there, you know, there was a telltale mark, actually. I'll tell you this. There were, many of them had like a pink highlighter stain. It's the best way I could describe it. You'd see like a, a, like if you flipped it over and you saw like someone left a pink highlighter on it too long and it kind of bled into the paper. Yeah. That's what it would look like. If anybody out there in T206 land has American beauty bags with pink highlighter stains that smell or reek of tobacco, you probably have one of those guys' cards. We could chase, trace it back to this junkie at Grand Central Station. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's the scariest thing, but as we were... Uh, thanking our wives she did come with me for that and uh we survived to tell the tale <laughs> it's a good so, woman so anyway yeah so i you know she actually looked at these mark the four back to the marquard story she looked at these four signed tito six marquards um and said that they were way more interesting than the stack of unsigned ones i had on my desk she was just she was just like, oh, those are really cool. You should you should try to get those. And it was you know, she was like really taking an interest and really sounded you know sincere about it. And I thought, well, she must have an idea as like someone who is looking at collections and this kind of collecting from a distance, not really being passionate about it, that this is really cool. Whereas I wasn't so sure because I know like as when you were growing up I and mean, you guys probably had the same experience, 
it was almost like a taboo to have a player sign a baseball card. Um, I remember I got to meet Mark McGuire at a card show in the 80s, and I brought his Olympic card to get signed. And I remember my friends before I went were like, don't don't get the Olympic card signed, man. That's going to be worth millions of dollars one day. <laughs> you know, if you get it signed, if you get it signed, it's like writing on the card. The autograph's only going to be like $10 and you're going to ruin the card. So what you should do is get the autograph on a piece of paper or an index card or a photo and keep the card mint. And I didn't understand what they were saying. So I actually got McGuire to sign the Olympic card. Um, but I did learn that many collectors felt that way. And so it was for the longest time, just taboo to get your card signed. And so, so few people actually did until on card autographs really started picking up within the last 20 years or so. So I got them, I got all four of those Mark cards. Um, Joe Rand, who, um, shout out to him. He still has one of the ones I don't have. I traded the doubles away a long time ago. Joe Rand ended up with one of them. The hands at sides one. I'm not sure where the other portrait is today, but I still have that portrait and the hands at sides in my collection from that purchase in 2004. A couple of years later, um, a Doyle batting showed up in an RR auction for less than 100 bucks. I was able to purchase that. Um, and a Fred Snodgrass batting showed up on eBay, I believe, also for not very much money. Um, and a Patty Livingston signed on the back, which I still have, uh, showed up on eBay as well, I believe. And all of these were not very expensive. You know, I had four or five of them for about three or four years. Um, and, you know, I thought they were pretty cool, but it wasn't like enough to really change the way I collected. Um, but then in 2007, um, there was a huge find of tobacco, autographed tobacco cards that came out of Pittsburgh. And um, they all started to show up on eBay in April of 2007. And I was able to, through eBay purchases and then also reaching out to the dealers who were, who were selling off the collection, all coming out of Pittsburgh, um, was able to get a pretty large quantity of them until I probably had mid-20s or high-20s different signed poses by the end of 2007. And really, at that point, I was hooked. And and at that point, had you done had you done a lot of research? Did you feel like you were you were an expert and sort of knew what you were doing? Um, I don't I don't know if I would say that. I mean, I think there's some there's some trial and error for sure. Um, for example, um, you know, I think that the uh, there, there's a Kovaleski in the T206 set who is not the Hall of Famer Kovaleski. Yeah, exactly. But the Hall of Famer Kovaleski has signed some of the non-Hall of Famer Kovaleski cards. <laughs> you got some, some mistakes there. Um, Larry Doyle signed his fair number of Joe Doyle cards, funny enough. Um, and I think there's a William Powell out there that signed the, the Powell card, um, the, you know, the horizontal one. Um, that is not, you know, is not the player who was featured there. So there's some mistakes like that. Um, did you end up with any of those early on? Early on, I did. I ended up with a Kovaleski, and you know, I brought it to James Spence, and he explained to me what that was <laughs> and how it wasn't the player. Um, and that, but I figured out the the Powell on my own by just looking up the names on on Baseball Reference. Um, you know, one of the nice things, and I think this actually helped kind of usher in a new era of autographed baseball cards, is is that PSA and then SGC in in collaboration with JSA would slab signed cards, right? You'd get the card graded, but you'd also get the autograph certified. Right. And and James Spence was doing that back in 07, I think for $25 a card, and it almost didn't matter who the player was. And so you would just bring the cards to a show where SGC or JSA were at and you drop them off. And then a month later, you'd have them back and either certified or not. But, you know, people started doing that pretty heavily and started sending in all of their cards to get to get certified either by JSA and SGC or by PSA DNA. Um, and I think that really helped educate us too. a lot of the collectors at the time. 
about you know what's real, what's not, and and, and what to look for. Um, you know, I would say that there's always been some concern that there's there's forgery. I think there's been forged um, baseball autographs since there's been baseball autographs. I think that's been going on forever. Um, and even in the old hobby publications from the 50s that I've read on these topics, they're complaining about fraud and, and forgeries. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things about the 07 find is that pretty much every player um, that was in that find was a player who was among the last players in T206 to pass away. Right. So you would have to have done a fairly substantial amount of research to only produce autographs of players who are among the last 10 or 15, maybe 20 guys to pass away in T206. And Mark Ward was the last to die in 1980, right? That is correct. Um, Mark Ward died on June 1st, 1980. Patty Livingston died on September 19th, 1977. And then you know, the very common ones also, relatively speaking, are Larry Doyle and Fred Snodgrass, both who died in 94. George McBride is fairly available, died in 1973. Um, you know, but all of these guys who were part of the, the, the find of 2007, they all died sometime, um, I think, really between 1968 and 1980. So there weren't really any players that um, you know, you'd have to strain credulity to agree must have signed these things, right? It wasn't like they were producing autographs of, you know, ones you see out there that I've never seen certified or like Huey Jennings or John McGraw, right? It's not like they were coming forward with autographs of players that, um, or managers that died in the 1920s or 30s. It was all guys who passed away in, in the 60s, late 60s, or, or early 70s primarily. And so that lended some credence to it. Um, and even then, I think you get some credibility out of the fact that they didn't have some players that would have been hard to find just because you might not have known, you know, that they were T206 players or where they lived. I mean, there were there were players that um, that didn't show up that if you were trying to if you're basically what I'm saying is if you were trying to forge player autographs of players who died in the 1970s or later, you know, then why wasn't Chick Gandel, you know, a Black Sox player? Why wasn't he part of all of these collections that came out in 07? Right. He died on on December 13th, 1970. If you were going to just go ahead and forge a ton of into six cards of players who died in the 1970s, Gandel would probably be one of the first ones you'd want to do because he was going to be worth a lot more than any of the others. Um, but I've never seen a Chick Gandel signed to a six card, right? Which I think in a, in a weird way kind of signifies how, um, you know, I, I want to say authentic the other ones were, right? It's just a not, you're not, you're, you're having a forger, if there is a forger out there doing this, ignoring the players who would be the most valuable. Yeah. So talk to talk to us a little bit about the process and 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 how some of this stuff took place back in the say 60s or 70s because I, I know a little bit about this and I know that there were some lists. I think Justin and I have also seen some envelopes where it's basically like you put the guy's name in a town and, and mail would find its way to them. So talk to us a little bit about the process for finding autographs and and, and seeking autographs through the mail back in the day. Yeah. So I um. Later in 2007, I also was able to track down um, a, a famous, really, in the autograph circles, collector named Jeff Morey. Um, you know, and I started posting some of the stuff I found on eBay from the 2007 Pittsburgh find. A couple of collectors reached out to me and said that they looked like they could be from the Jeff Morey collection. Um, so I tracked him down. He's still, today, actually, still... Um, producing a magazine that he puts out called the autograph review um and he's more than happy to talk about collecting and he actually put together an amazing collection of autographs in the 1950s and 60s because he worked as a photographer um at cooperstown taking photos of induction ceremonies um and so he would go and he would take photos of the players 
then he'd have the players develop the, the photos develop, excuse me, and he'd bring them to get autographed by the players, like you know Frank Baker, Nap Lajule, um, Ty Cobb. He got all of these guys, um, and he was also uh, smart enough uh, to bring T206 and T205 and T201 and T202 cards with him to Cooperstown um, and have the players sign them there too. Um, and he also would mail a lot of the cards to these guys um, to get signed through the mail afterwards. Um, and it was really something that he was able to kind of shed light, on, light to me on how, how this all got done. Um, I actually also interviewed him um, as well and, and published that interview on my website as well. He ended up publishing the addresses that he was able to find in magazines and, and hobby periodicals at the time. Um, he would write columns for, for, um, for different hobby publications back in the 50s and 60s. And he would identify like strategies for, for sending anything to these, these old time players uh, who were still alive. And a number of collectors in the 60s took him up on it um, and started sending tobacco cards to these guys. And so you now have um, a fairly, you know, it must have been a fairly substantial because there's still five or six of them kicking around talking about it. Um, who would send these tobacco cards off to players in the 1960s because their addresses were published um, in, in the sports, you know, the sports reporter um, or the trader speaks um, or the card collectors bulletin, a whole bunch of different publications at the time. So I know there's a couple of collections. There's Jeff Morey's, there's the Pittsburgh Fine, there's a couple of other ones. Um, so it seems like most of the cards in existence can be traced back to one of these uh, big collections, a lot of which was done in person and through the mail. Uh, how many different, how many of these cards are out there? Uh, how many different signed poses are out there? How many cards? How many have you seen? So I've, I've been able to identify 57 different poses that are out there and credibly signed, meaning either they've been certified by JSA, Beckett, or PSA, or they have such provenance, it's obvious to me anyway, that they are real. The best example I'll give of one that I know is real and may not have a certification with it um, is, is the Hooks Wiltsey portrait with no cap that Jeff Morey got himself when he actually went to Hooks Wilty's house back in the 1950s as a teenager. Um, and that card was part of a large collection of Jeff Morey's cards that sold in Mastro auctions in, in 2001 and 2002 that included the lion's share of, of, of Jeff's collection. But beyond that, I think the other, all of the 56 others that I've been able to identify have all been certified by one of the big three and or otherwise have, um, you know, obviously credible provenance. There's been some controversy in the last couple of years back in 2018 that a lot of slabbed uh, signed T206s actually were forgeries. So I think it's, you know, important for people to keep in mind some of the things that you're saying here, like the most the most recent death of T206 players was 1980 with Rube Marquard, which means every signed T206 was autographed in 1980 and prior to that. Um, <clears throat> so if someone has a card and there's evidence it was signed after 1980, obviously uh, it can it's fake, but there's been other ones that have emerged. Um, so I wonder if you might be able to tell people what to look for for authenticity and kind of, you know, how to spot a problematic card or how to spot a legitimate one. Yeah, look, I think that um, what we dealt with in 2018 is something that is always going to be part of autograph collecting. Autograph collecting, unless you were the person who actually sat there and got the signature himself or herself, um, is always going to have some kind of leap of faith. <clears throat> you know, in, in, in the parlance of people who collect T206s based on the grade that the holder gives them, you know, you're always taking some leap of faith that the card hasn't been altered or trimmed or recolored or something to that effect. Um, it's similar, but not exactly the same. Um, but again, so it's third party grading companies would never make a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Right. Yeah. And just so, just to fill in people who aren't aware, and you can go online and read about this, but basically a number of T206s uh, were slabs sold in auctions. Uh, Paul can explain maybe a little bit about how people uh, discovered they were fake, but in short, people uh, who were suspicious of these cards went back and for many of them were able to identify recent sales of the exact unsigned card that later ended up autographed somehow in a slab from uh, PSA. Um, so there was a bit of, a, not a bit of, extensive detective work done on Net54 and other places uh, to, to smoke these cards out and, cha- and trace them back to the original ca- unsigned cards and expose the forgeries. Yeah, so that, that actually happened because a collector on Net54 had purchased a mark card, hands its side, um, that had been signed or purportedly signed at, in a clean sweep auction. And he was able to get um, JS, I guess it, either it came with a JSA, I think it came with a JSA cert, and he went to go bring it to SGC to get authenticated and encapsulated. And SGC refused to encapsulate it. And so the, the guy who didn't get who had the JSA cert but didn't have the SGC encapsulation went on Net54 and said, did I buy a fake mark card? And some folks did some research on Net54 and were able to find a picture of the same mark card without the signature. And the, the card has its own, like what they talk about is fingerprints, right? You can see exactly the same creases or exactly the same print dots or stains or corner damage, what have you, whatever imperfection it is on the unsigned version that also appear on the signed version, and you know now you're dealing with a forgery. And that started a lot of people into looking at other cards that had been recently sold that kind of strained credulity because it was a pose maybe that nobody had ever seen before that had been signed purportedly um, and had been authenticated by JSA or SGC. Um, you know, I think it's it's probably worthwhile noting to your listeners that PSA actually only screwed up one of them, but it was the most expensive one. It was a Frank Baker, um, which I think sold for $25,000 at auction before it was found out to be fake. Um, by and large, the rest of the players who were identified were were commons um, that sold anywhere for a few hundred bucks to, you know, five, six, seven thousand dollars for, I think Billy Sullivan, um, as well as other players like Wid Conroy, players that nobody had ever seen signed on a T206 card, or had any reason to believe had signed a T206 card, were now showing up on T206 cards. You know, I think what was also really problematic and what made it so scary for people, including myself, was that the forger, A, was excellent. Um, Turns out, by the way, I know that there's still an investigation going on by the FBI into this whole thing, but it turns out that the forger was probably part of a forgery ring um, coming out of um, Ohio. If you Google, I think, Gerard, Ohio, and forgery ring, you'll see some information about this. Um, but it, you know, these are, these are professional artists, um, graphic designers who are doing these signatures and they're doing a hell of a job and they're fooling, you know, the purported experts in the field, as well as a number of collectors, including myself at the time. Myself Um, too. I had, I had two at the time and, uh, they both, they both, uh, came back as no good. Yeah. And I really soured people on them. Um, and I got really, I got pretty down on collecting them too. Um, I had, I think, four that were fake. Fortunately, on all of them, uh, the auction houses where I bought them from, uh, including Robert Edward auctions and Hunt auctions, uh, made good. And so I didn't lose any money directly from that. Um, but it, it certainly soured a lot of people on that aspect of the hobby. And really, in, in my estimation, kind of unfortunately cast a pall of doubt and suspicion on everything that I collect. Um, and it was because of that that I spent a lot of time digging very deeply for the first time into where the hell all these signed T206 cards were coming from. You know, what, what you were, the comments I was getting or seeing online particularly 
where things like all TSO6 cards that are autographed are fake. I've been collecting baseball cards since the 1960s, and nobody ever had a signed TSO6 card or showed a signed TSO6 card to anybody until the 90s when they were all forged. Um, they're all fake. Um, and I know that's not true because I've had conversations with Jeff Morey, and I know what the Pittsburgh find is, and I'm certain of that that collection's authenticity. Um, so I wanted to find the source of as many signed tobacco cards as I could, and I went back and I started creating lists of things like the first time these cards showed up for sale, and trying to, you know, basically put together data points showing as far back as I could um, to the original point of through the mail autograph um, request to, to identify the authenticity of these, of these cards. And, and so now um, I'm really trying to just keep tabs on where all these cards came from, which collections they were from, and, and try to identify and nail down the provenance of all of these things. Ed, I just want to point out, uh, people should definitely, I've found it to be an incredible resource, go to signt206.com, which is Paul's website. It is by far the top resource on signed T206s on the internet. Uh, incredible information about Paul's collection, uh, what else is out there, uh, and the history and provenance of the cards as we're, we're discussing here. And, you know, you can see things like fo old photos, pre-90s photos, uh, of people showing off collections with signed T206 cards in them, giving further credence to your story here that these cards did exist, they do exist, uh, and for many of them, you can trace them back to their origins. Yeah, I, in fact, on my website, I have a picture that Jeff Morey sent me of him in, the, in 1973 taking a picture of his entire collection, including an open binder filled with signed T206 cards, where you can still identify who they were. Similarly, Going back to the 60s and 70s, you can see people literally buying and selling them in, in magazine publications. You know, Dan Dishley, who ran the, the Trader Speaks, uh, 1975, tried to sell a Hindu-backed Snodgrass autograph for three bucks, right? So these things existed. Jeff Morey himself tried to sell two Sam Crawfords for three bucks that were autographed back in the late 1960s and he never got an offer on them and ended up selling them in 2001 in the Mastro auction. Right. Oh, so, that's funny. Yeah. So, you know, they exist. There wasn't all that much interest in them. Um, they were sort of interesting or neat, but nobody really thought of them as super valuable. And frankly, even in 2007, when they sold uh, through eBay and, and, and online through the dealer sources, you know, I got my Sam Crawford autograph T206 card in 2007 for 400 bucks. Wow. Right? It, 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 they were, it was worth something. And obviously it's not like chump change. It's, it's $400, but it wasn't like these were, these were setting records or going crazy. You know what I think happened, this is my theory anyway, in 2013, Heritage Auctions sold 10 signed T206 and T205 cards. None of those players that were featured there were really any different than the autographs that either Jeff Morey got or that the Pittsburgh collector who sold his collection in 2007 got. None of the players were any different, but the cards suddenly were selling for thousands of dollars just for comments. So cards like Knapp, Rucker, um, and Tommy Leach were now selling for two, three, even $4,000. And I think that is what opened the eyes of the forgers to the extreme value of these things. Um, because if you look at the 15 cards that were outed as fake on Net54 two years ago, the first unsigned versions of the cards that were then forged started being purchased by the forger in February of 2015. Okay, so that was you know, within a year or so after the heritage auction had a lot of extremely valuable ones for sale. And from that point on, from 2015 on, I would have to say that unless you can show me provenance that traces those cards 
to before a date um, of January 1st, 2015 is the cutoff I used. Unless you can show me that that card existed, or at least reasonable proof that that card must have existed prior to January of 2015, then I'm probably not going to be interested in purchasing that or, or trading that from you. I do think anything that shows up new that doesn't have a fairly decent source um, that hasn't been identified or that I can't trace back some way to before 2015, I have to say that it's highly suspicious to me. Uh, for someone just dipping their toe in the water here, what do they need to keep an eye out for? I, you know, Again, going to scientist206.com and looking through the resources you have is a great way to start. Um, but what tips are there um, and what are these things worth now? So I, I think you have to be, um, look, I know that people have a lot of opinions about third-party grading. Um, but if you don't know what you're doing with respect to buying like a mint T206 card raw, for example, you would tell somebody before they spend tens of thousands of dollars on a mint T206 card that is raw, you would tell them to get it graded by PSA or SGC before they would make that purchase, right? I mean, that's, you, you would typically want someone to get that certification before you were going to drop any serious dollars on a baseball card that based on the representation that it's a mint card, not like a trimmed or a forgery or a fake or something. And it's really the same thing with autographs. You want to make sure that um, if you don't know what you're doing, you really ought to make sure that JSA, Beckett, and or PSA have signed off on it. Now, it is going to be hard in this climate to get all three of those companies to that any autograph is real. Sometimes they will. And it's very expensive to get all three of them anyway to certify the same card. I wouldn't recommend you necessarily go through that process. Um, but you got to get at least one of those three on board before you can really feel comfortable that you're going to hold something that is going to retain its, its value. You want to know that it's going to retain its value or appreciate and if it doesn't have one of those three when you buy it you're taking a significant risk that what you're getting is not the real deal the other thing i'll tell you is and this is probably true of unsigned cards too if it looks too good to be true it probably is and when you try to find the diamonds in the rough on ebay it's just it's always a too good to be true and it never pans out so i would discourage yeah. that and it seems like uh, at least for ones that are known to be legitimate, around $1,000 is the lowest you're going to see those for. I mean, there's been, yeah, uh, obviously there, you know, some just showed up recently. You know, I know that Al Leafield sold for a little less than that, but, and that, but that was glued to a piece of cardboard. But, you know, you're not, you're yeah, not going to find one of these for a couple hundred bucks. No, you're really not. Um, the, even like the, like, I think there are a number of George McBrides that have been signed that are pretty beat up. Um, even those sell for, you know, six to $800. And that's about the lowest condition, most prevalent version. A nice, clean, signed tobacco card of a common is going to sell for at least $1,000. And if you look at the heritage auctions from this past August, you'll see they had a pretty large grouping of them on, on, on heritage. And not a single one of them went for less than $1,000. And what's the record right now? Because I know a Ty Cobb just sold, uh, a new Ty Cobb just sold. Last time we talked, uh, the I think the record was 144000 for the signed Green Cobb. Yes. Yeah, so actually, and this kind of ties into the provenance point you were making, I did a ton of research on the, um, the Green Cobb, the signed Green Cobb that sold in Heritage Auctions in February. Um, for $144,000. And I was able to trace it back to the original collector, um, who um, this guy by the name of George Hitner was the registrar at a school in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, known as the Hill School. And Ty Cobb's son, Ty Cobb Jr., also went to the Hill School in 1928, which also happens to be the year that Ty Cobb finished his career in Philadelphia, um, which is just like, I guess, a 40-minute drive from Pottsville. And Hitner is in the local press showing up at, the, uh, at a ceremony where Ty Cobb announced that he was signing with the Philadelphia Athletics that year. So you know that Hitner 
had the opportunity, obviously, and was at least cordial with Ty Cobb in 1928. But then you see the envelope that um, Hitner used to correspond with Ty Cobb, um, which, according to Hunt Auctions and SCP Auctions a few years later, was a conduit for signed tobacco cards being exchanged between Hitner and Cobb. Um, and now um, you have these cards showing up again in 2020 on Heritage, and now we're selling for $144,000 for the, for the Cobb Green in February. And then just last month, the Cobb Red sold for $192,000 from the same collection. And if you look at the auction for that card that sold in August, you'll see that they use a number of the um, the photographs that I identified from the Hunt auction when these first came to market back in 1995 that were on my website. And I actually worked with, um, I think, Chris Ivey at Heritage to get that provenance to him so that that card um, would at least be sold with the right amount of provenance um, that, that would go with it. But it's pretty interesting to be able to trace the opportunity for George Hitner to get those autographs to as early as 1928 and as late as 1940, which is when the envelope was postmarked from Ty Cobb to George Hitner. So that's amazing. And obviously it's a ironclad provenance then for what is now the most expensive signed uh, T206 out there. Um, okay. So we, we talked about, you know, the, the history of these cards, what to look for, for authenticity, some of the value obviously what the cards are going for now, uh, the records they've hit. Um, what other research, what, what, what else should people know about signed T206s if they're, they're thinking about going into, you know, getting into them? I think you have to be patient. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are, are intrigued by them, but they're nervous because of the fraud. Um, and so few of them show up online. So I think you have to be patient. Um, but they do come up. Um, they are available. More and more will continue to show up as the collectors who got these in the 60s decide to part with them either voluntarily before they die or part of an estate sale, unfortunately, after they pass away. Uh, in fact, um, last week, three new examples showed up on eBay. I think you mentioned that they were, they were pasted to index cards. Um, and um, actually, it was, I think it was five actually new examples showed up, four of which were pasted to index cards, and one of which a Walsh was not. Um, and these all came from the collection of a guy named um, Don, uh, Don Post, whose nickname was Barefoot because he was a semi professional athlete who played baseball and basketball barefoot in Rochester, New York at the time. Um, and the cards themselves had been signed, but if you flipped over the, the index card that they were pasted to, the players also wrote nice letters to Don Post, um, who, again, was from Rochester. And in fact, these, um, this, the seller of the cards on eBay is also a Rochester-based memorabilia dealer. So it kind of lines up geographically that, that he would be the guy selling Don Post's um, uh, you know, estate collection, essentially, which is binder after binder of, of tobacco cards, which were still showing up on eBay, not signed, but he had a lot of other unsigned tobacco cards that are still up there right now as we speak. Um, and, you know, there's provenance there because you can kind of identify who was the collector who got them. Um, they're all players that, again, that were active signing through the mail in the 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, except for Ed Walsh, which I'll mention in a minute. Um, they were all glued to pieces of index cards or cardboard, um, which you wouldn't normally do um, if you were trying to preserve the value as a forger. Um, and most of them weren't even signed on the card itself. They were signed on the index card below the card. So the fact that these all kind of came out at the same time, uh, I think there were... 20 examples or so came out on eBay last week, um, you know, led a lot of 
credibility to the group. Um, I think there's pretty decent provenance with the with the identification of the collector, uh, who was fairly well known athlete in Rochester, um, who did in fact pass away in 2014. Um, so it, it's pretty credible. It's about as credible as it gets for an estate collection. Um, and there were plenty of those to go around, and a lot of new collectors did get into it and did get a couple uh, of signed T206 cards, you know, for less than a thousand dollars. And they're they're as far as I can tell, as far as I would say, I'm I'm as certain as you can be uh, without being there in person that the that these are the real deal. Now the Walsh, um, which I will admit I bid on fairly heavily, um, sold raw for. $2,800. I did not win it. Um, and I, I, I tend to believe it's authentic because it does come from the same collection. You know, having said that, it doesn't look anything like a Walsh that I've seen that was part of the Jeff Morey collection. Um, it also is a little concerning to me because Walsh died in 1959. And the rest of the autographs that Don Post got were on T206 cards that were signed in 1965 or later, between 1965 and 1968, typically. Um, and it, the Walsh was not and has never been, based on the condition of the reverse, glued to an index card. Um, the ones that were glued to index cards, when you look underneath them or if they come off, because they do unfortunately peel off pretty easily, um, they're stained heavily on the back. And the Walsh is clean white on the back. And so you know that that was not acquired the same way that Don Post acquired the rest of his signed T206 cards. And so there is some suspicion there. Um, and so I'll be interested to see if PSA or Beckett will encapsulate that. Um, if the person who won that is listening to this, I would advise you to start with JSA first, because I think that they're more confident about that era of baseball history to to make a judgment on a signature that doesn't quite look like um, like every uh, exemplar that's public, um, but that they can identify as authentic because I do believe that JSA has a larger exemplar database in this regard than any of the other any of the other um, companies doing this business. Yeah, that was an amazing collection that popped up, and like you said, there was a lot of uh, consistency with the with the cards and the format they were found in and those notes that were attached to them were just uh, so of the time and detailed. Those were super cool. These were just so folks, if you want to check out eBay and look for these, uh, these, for these past sold auctions, uh, several of the players had basically written their, their baseball history on the back of the index cards. So one, one card had the T206 either signed on it uh, or glued and signed underneath it on one side. And the other side would have a note about, their minor league uh, experience, where they went to play Major League Baseball, what they did afterwards. Um, really fantastic pieces of history. And I do want to note that the poor man's version of the signed T206, which might interest people who are intrigued by this conversation, is uh, what I've been collecting in my set is uh, index cards signed by T206 players, which can be obtained for significantly less money than a signed T206 card. Uh, and often some that have some of the same riches they're talking about. So an index card with a, a personalized note. Um, one of the things I've, I've talked to Paul about before is uh, I have a Larry Doyle signed index card where he talks about how he was in the hospital uh, and sick for the last few months uh, in the, in this, in the card he sent back to the collector. Um, I have another one by George McBride noting what a nice, uh, hobby collecting autographs is. Um, so you get a little personal taste from these players on those and, and, you know, those signed index cards can, you know, I see them go for as little as, you know, 15 or $20 encapsulated, uh, and on up obviously according to the player and scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also to piggyback on what you said is, Patty Livingston, when he, he lived until, I think, 1976 or 77, and a lot of people tried to get his autograph in the late 60s and 70s and were very successful. And he would often return with his autograph a signed Xerox copy of his T206 card. 
Um, so you end up with a lot of Patty Livingston autographed, what is essentially a black and white reprint T206 card that Livingston himself made to give to autograph seekers. Um, and he took the care to actually make sure that each one of them had a Piedmont back too. So it was a double-sided, <laughs> whatever, a double-sided black and white photocopy that he had made for his, for his autograph seekers, his fans, and he would send those back. And so those are very readily available on eBay and they're also very cheap, 25, 30 bucks a piece. Another kind of fun thing I do is I collect the 1914 Cracker Jacks autographed by Ed Roush. Um, the, the the reprints, excuse me, that show up on eBay also, usually for 10 or 15 bucks. Um, and I realize we're talking about a reprint here, but it's pretty cool to have a Hall of Famer autographed from the 1914 era on, you know, the same image that is the 1914 Cracker Jack card. And it's only costing you 10 or 15 bucks, which to me is a, is a bargain for really owning a piece of, of baseball history and really tying yourself back in to the, the, um, to the to that era the dead ball era you know the 19 the early 1910s absolutely i mean you know the the signed t206 cards are so special uh for for aesthetic reasons and because they're so rare um but if you know if you're like me and you just you like bringing the game to life in any way that you can uh you know having these player autographs on index cards or other interesting pieces of paper uh really uh, you know for me at least accomplish the same the same thing um Jay, you got anything to say? Any more questions for Paul? I, I'm going to give a plug to a book that I stole from you like two years ago, Justin, <laughs> which I'm actually now finally just reading. But The Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter, which is from the late 60s. He basically sought out, set out to find you know, guys from the, the, the tobacco era and just after who were still alive. And thus, there's a lot of overlap between the guys that Paul ha has been talking about and the guys that are in this book. But really, really awesome stories that really bring the game to life. And um, I should return Justin's book soon. <laughs> I'll, I'll add that you can actually go on YouTube right now and listen to the interviews that were, were there, that were caused to be turned into the chapters of that book. Um, and in fact, each of those players, um, Larry Ritter gave them all authorship credit. So each of those players got an endorsement check every time a book was sold. Um, and Larry would send those players the endorsement check. And so there's this whole side genre of autograph collecting that includes the correspondence between Larry Ritter and those players, including some Hall of Famers like, like Sam Crawford, um, about how the book is doing on the sales and how how much money they're making on and it wasn't a lot of money but it was a couple hundred bucks here or there um on on uh on the endorsements um and even players like rube mark bard and, and fred snodgrass if you ask brad excuse me fred snodgrass if you ask them for their autograph in the late 60s or early 70s they would oblige by giving you their autograph but they would also encourage you to go out and buy this book because, because of course they were also getting a cut of it <laughs> well that's good i mean when you read that book and you read read stories about these guys i mean many of them maybe most of them were not well off after leaving baseball no very few of them were um fred snodgrass actually did pretty well he became the mayor of oxnard california um and, and I think Davy Jones was a fairly successful dentist or a pharmacist. I forget. He was a pharmacist. He was a pharmacist. He opened pharmacist. all those pharmacies. It was so cool. Yeah. So some of them did really well, but I think that he references that Hans Lobert was in really hard times and didn't look so great when he went to interview him. Um, and Lobert, when he was when he would sign in the '60s, would point out that he was still a scout for the San Francisco Giants. Um, but it, it doesn't look like he was making very much money from that role. Um, but he certainly had a lot of pride that he was still involved in baseball in that capacity, even in the 1960s, which is still like 50 years after his career ended. Yeah, the life of a professional baseball player and anyone who's familiar with, you know, with early 20th century baseball knows this. But certainly even for some of the most famed players, uh, it was very different than the life of a famous baseball player now in the 20th, the late 20th or 21st century. Um, and I think that's what makes all of this that much more interesting um, that, you know, the degree to which the, the you know, players were excited to be connecting with fans later in their lives 
um, because the culture of baseball and collecting and fandom was so different back then. Um, so even the fact that people collected these autographs is remarkable uh, and that they've survived is even more so. Yeah, I mean, Ty Cobb, I think, made millions of dollars because he invested in Coca-Cola stock very early on, being a Georgia native and Coca-Cola coming out of Georgia. Um, but very few players were able to make um, significant money playing baseball at all. And virtually all of them had to take on different careers entirely after they left. I mean, some of them obviously made it as coaches and managers and, and scouts and such. But by and large, they had to get out of baseball and go do, um, sort of, so to speak, another, you know, an honest man's living somewhere else. Uh, so again, yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Jay. Again, Paul's website is signedt206.com. That's signedt206.com. Again, incredible resource for anyone interested in pre-war baseball card collecting, particularly signed T206 cards. And follow uh, me on follow me on Instagram. Yes, to see all of this stuff in full color in real life, regularly pushed right into your notifications. Uh, followed <laughs> signed T206. At Instagram, I'm actually looking at it right now. And if you want to see some photos of some of the cards we've been talking about uh, on this call, including the, the, the Zach Wheat that you just got, Paul, uh, from that signed and glued collection, uh, again, check it out. Signed T206, uh, signed T206 at Instagram, signed T206.com is the website. Thank you again, Paul, for your time and your expertise. Keep up the great work, and I hope to have you on again. I appreciate it, and I wish you guys good luck. And I love this podcast, and I hope you continue it um, regularly. Thanks so much. See you, Paul. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Monster Podcast. Don't forget to check us out online at themonsterpodcast.com and on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you next time.